You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hi, I'm Melissa Roach, and I work at SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement, along with your host, Am Johal. And this week, I'm introducing an episode featuring political economist and SFU professor of geography, Jeff Mann. Jeff is the director of the Center for Global Political Economy at SFU, and he's recently authored two books dealing with Keynesian economics, capitalism, and questions of climate and sovereignty, in what he describes as our current state of permanent emergency. Welcome to... <laughs> I forgot the title of our podcast already. Okay, we'll start what, what is it called? <laughs> Oh, no. thank you. Maybe you should do it. She <laughs> <laughs> should. Uh, welcome to Below the Radar. This is Am Johal, and we're really excited to have Jeff Mann uh, with us today. He's a professor in the geography department at SFU, where he's also the director of the Center for Global uh, Political Economy. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. Um, Jeff, you've been uh, teaching at SFU for a while, and you've been uh, writing uh, a lot of interesting books over the years, from uh, AK Press to Verso and other uh, work. Uh, I wanted to begin by talking a little bit about how you came up with the idea to start working on the, the book on Keynes uh, that you did. In the long run, we're all dead. Sure. Actually, I mean, at least to me, it is a sort of interesting uh, origin story. Um, in a well, as you know, in 2000, late 2007 and early 2008, the whole financial world started to fall apart. And then in uh, September and October, it really did apparently fall apart. And in that process, um, the name of John Maynard Keynes, an economist from the 20s and 30s, and eventually he died in 1946. Um, in that process, his name uh, started to be circulating really widely again in mainstream circles. And that was really, really unusual. And it's sort of a nerdy little uh, fact that those of us obsessed with this kind of stuff would probably be more familiar with than others. But Keynes had been uh, very influential in the way that macroeconomic policy was conducted for most of the post-war world, post-World War II world, until about the mid-1970s when his ideas were considered the reason that stagnation, stagflation, inflation, all this other stuff came apart, came upon us, sorry. And his ideas were discredited, widely discredited. You heard lots of Keynes is dead. You know, Keynesianism is a disaster. Um, it was, in many ways, the flip that switched neoliberalism on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know in, in BC, it was like in grade 12 history, you would study uh, Keynes would be brought up in terms of that context. Uh, and so it was in the high school system, but in a very in that very particular way that you're talking about. Absolutely. And the university system, I mean, I'm trained in, in political economy, and it was taken as a given that his ideas were no longer appropriate to the world. And many, of course, felt that they never had been and that they'd caused the problems. But at, at any, in any event, so uh, around comes, you know, late fall 2008, and Keynes is on the cover of Time magazine. He's being celebrated by the Wall Street Journal. 
Um, the Financial Times is calling for his return. These are people who would have been laughed out of the room with their colleagues if they'd said that even a year before. And so I, as someone who considers himself quite far to the left of Keynes, uh, was worried that the reaction to the financial crisis would be the resuscitation of basically a capitalist an attempt on the part of capital to resuscitate itself so that the, the whole system could get going again, which seemed to be the purpose that Keynes would serve for them. So I decided I want to write a book that said, Keynes is back and that's a bad thing. And this is why. And so I started to dig into it. And he has, for those of you who aren't familiar, and there's probably lots who are, he wrote a book in 1936 called The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. And it, it's about as exciting, if you're not an economist, to read as it sounds. But for some of us, it's pretty interesting, and it was a really influential book that kind of founded Keynesianism as we understand it today. So I thought I was going to write a rewrite of that book from a sort of Marxian-Gramscian perspective that said, this is, these are the ideas he was trying to come up with. This is why this would be a disaster today. We'll just get a, a, a retuning of neoliberalism. And so uh, I started to write that book, and in the process, the more I read Keynes and the more I read the people who were responding to Keynes in the 1930s when he wrote it, when the world was falling apart around him, I started to see myself more and more in Keynes and in those conversations. And I started to see more and more of what I understood to be the kind of intellectual left that understood itself as anti-Keynesian, but actually was very Keynesian. And so then it became, the book turned into, and I know that you've read it so you know, but it beca- the book turned into a, just in some extent, a diagnosis of kind of elite liberalism, um, both its radical variety, but also its uh, mainstream variety. And I, I, in the end, the book is really, a, to some extent, a reflection on what I see as the links between modern left political economy and, in some ways, politics, and its roots in a kind of bourgeois fear of popular sovereignty and the masses which I think persists, even amongst people who, who are very convinced that they're pro-masses and pro-democracy. I think there's a lot of people out there who want revolution without revolutionaries and change without transformation. If, if you were to take a look at like that 1930s moment in which uh, he was writing and there were, was a state intervention in particular places, be it the New Deal in the U.S. or uh, in some other places, when you see the 2008 collapse kind of uh, carry out and being in this level of trajectory 10 years out and you see the Donald Trump tax cuts, you see the federal liberals in Canada who ran on a kind of uh, middle-class policy analysis, and then when the mini-budget comes out, they start talking about competitiveness and they need to lower taxes to keep up with the U.S. And, of course, it's like a deja vu all over again in terms of uh, early 80s kind of uh, policymaking. So in some sense, um, the kinds of uh, reasons that Keynes maybe got brought up to the surface post-2008, in fact... Um, wasn't implemented in a way that in the 30s or 40s might have been. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the policy frames have kind of shaken out post-2008 in terms of how it relates back to your your Mm -hmm. book too. That's a really, those are interesting connections to make. Um, I think that, I mean, one of the things that comes up whenever I'm having a conversation about Keynes, which happens more often than it probably does for a lot of people. Um, uh, people 
who are familiar with the debates uh, commonly point out that his name basically disappeared from conversation quite quickly, probably by 2011. The, the same folks who'd been calling for his return were no longer calling for his return. I would argue that's partly a function of the fact that the Keynesian emergency measures that were put into place worked fairly well. And so there was no need to call for him anymore because it seemed like neoliberal capital was resuscitating itself quite fine now, which actually and arguably was very much Keynes's hope in some people's minds, they think that. At any rate, the policy trajectory since that time has been, I think, in many ways to walk a tightrope around the need for constant emergency vigilance, which we might associate with Keynesianism, and not just at the economic scale, but also at the political scale. So the, the kinds of responses that we see right now from Macron to the gilet jaune uh, are very much in line with the kind of panic-stricken worry about mob rule that terrified Keynes. And one might defend Keynes's extremely Victorian bourgeois kind of attitude by, by pointing out the fact that he saw fascisms emerging all around him in England as well, and, and in many ways more organized fascisms than our own. And so for him, uh, mob rule or popular rule meant fascism, which was his m most deepest concern. And I think that that fear obviously uh, is a very big deal today amongst elites, maybe not amongst some of the folks who, you know, proudly Trump at Trump or, uh, or the various other kind of minor or major authoritarianisms that are emerging. But certainly amongst the kind of liberal elite that has circled around the Democratic Party in the US or the Liberal Party here in Canada, I think that fear of popular voice however it be voiced, um, is enormous. So weirdly enough, the, the post-financial crisis trajectory has had to kind of combine a very uh, emergency-oriented, quasi-Keynesian palliative measures alongside an attempt to completely reinstitute and reconstitute the power of neoliberal capital and the state, which go together, obviously, um, to bring those two things together, and they don't marry very well. And I think that's partly why we see these kind of constant crisscrossing of crises and moments of calm and then another panic, because the fear of disruption can emerge now, it seems to the state and capital, I think, from anywhere. And so how do you keep those two balls in the air? Well, you can't, but that's the attempt. Mm -hmm. This this type of um, uh, methodology that Keynes lays out around uh, the role that the state can place in maintaining order through uh, infusions of uh, capital in particular ways and particular uh, things to maintain uh, the centrality of the state um, in, in a lot of ways. And uh, when we talk about populism today, be it uh, the Steve Bannon right-wing authority or the Brexit pieces in, in Europe and uh, the way that they're playing out in each kind of localized um, uh, condition, um, is Keynes still relevant to read the present political moment in, in, in that sense? Um, in terms of uh, the the place that we are in the um, economic crisis that's still continuing to unfold, like be it with uh, the low, uh, artificially low interest rates, the kind of uh, infusion of um, that kind of liquidity into the system for that period of time. Because in, in a way, Keynesianism um, uh, wasn't implemented or, or utilized in quite the way it has been in previous iterations of the crisis. Mm -hmm. It's true. I mean, it's uh, at one point in the book, I, I, 
I describe it as a neoliberal Keynesianism. Right, um, right. And I do think you're right, it has changed a lot. I think that the relevance of Keynes f- from a purely economic perspective or an economic policy perspective, you could maybe say, um, Keynes continues to be extraordinarily relevant. If we look at the, the the spectrum of what we might call mainstream economics, and I don't mean neoclassical, you know, the kind of um, caricature of economics that actually most economists would laugh at as well. You know, the discussion of the kind of hardcore laissez-faire so-called neoclassical economist is a hard person to actually find. Um, very, this is an influential way of thinking, but it's not. Most economists are very aware of the real world, even if they try to simplify it for their own work. Um, and if we include Keynes in a kind of spectrum of of uh, mainstream economics, then um, we might say it's extraordinarily relevant, if only because it is used so much as the knowledge through which the world is understood by the powers that be. You know, like the 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 main economic models that the Bank of Canada uses to understand the macro economy are called New Keynesian models. Like, there's a reason for these the, this intellectual influence. Um, but I would say that even more, and this is, I guess, mostly what the book is about, Keynes is relevant today because a diagnosis of our current conjuncture, I think, leads many of us, even those who understand ourselves as more or less radical, um, many of us who understand ourselves as more or less radical, a diagnosis of the current conjuncture produces a kind of knee-jerk Keynesianism, I would argue. Uh, a, a kind of anxious Keynesianism, a situation in which the current situation seems dire, but for it to disintegrate, we make the assumption that that will produce chaos. And so those of us who've been critics of the status quo for so long come to defend it in the interests of avoiding what we see as a much worse fate. I think that insofar as that's an accurate description of Keynesianism, and certainly that's my argument in the book, then Keynesianism is alive and well. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the greatest barriers to more significant transformation, precisely because it is a, it is a significant effort to avoid significant transformation. Right, yeah. There, there's a former uh, UK Labour MP, Stuart Holland, who I met uh, this summer in, in Hungary at a summer institute, and he's a, a big critic of, of Keynes, and I was telling him about your book, and he asked me what the title was, and he just started burst out laughing, uh, because he's, he's I think he has a very similar line on Keynes uh, that, that you do, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how, why you decided to go with the title that you did. Right, well, it's a good question. I, I didn't come up with it, yeah. I, like, uh, you know, when this is the first time I've ever worked with a press that's sort of, I wouldn't say versos or at all oriented around making money. Clearly, they're they're they have a political motivation. It's a it's a you know they call themselves the most prominent left press in the English language, and I think that's fair to say. But they are interested in marketing, in a way that other presses I've worked with have not. <laughs> are not sorry. Um, I've worked with four other presses, and and they are less savvy. But Verso wants to get your book out there, and they you know they make an effort to to get it read and get it seen. Um, and so, when we were coming up with the title, when we were coming up with virtually everything, actually the the cover, everything, there's a. It's unlike working with a university press where they say, "What do you want to call it?" and you say, "I want to call it." A boring study of political economy, <laughs> and and the university press goes, okay, great, you know, and they just go with. It. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but but with Verso, you go, I want to call it this, and they're like, nope, you're calling it this. 
<laughs> so, yeah. so I mean, I'm, I'm only exaggerating a little bit. So I had originally suggested, and I don't think it's near as good as the one we came up with, uh, the cap, the, the communism of capital, um, which is a phrase that Antonio Negri, uh, uh, attributed attributes to Marx in an article about Keynes. It's kind of a convoluted story, but anyway, Marx never actually said that phrase, but Keynes attributes it to him. I mean, sorry, but Negri attributes it, attributes it to him, uh, in a very powerful and influential critique of Keynes. And so I thought that was a good title. They thought it sucked. <laughs> um, and they came up with this as an alternative, and I immediately saw that it was a much better title. Yeah, in the long yeah. run, we're all dead. Oh, but but I should say, for those who don't know, that it's a it's probably, Keynes, Keynes has a, uh, he was a really sharp speaker and writer, and he has many phrases that are now kind of common, common quotations that people know. And this is this is a, a, a phrase that he said in 1924 in a book called the tract a tract on monetary reform, which was a critique of the attempt to return to the gold standard after World War One, which he saw as disastrous and which proved to be disastrous. He was absolutely right about that. Um, in fact, Winston Churchill, who made a lot of mistakes, always said that the biggest one he ever made was was going back on the gold standard. Now, I mean, when, that's Winston Churchill forgetting about his genocidal practices in the colonies and things like that. <laughs> But regardless, uh, so in this book, uh, Keynes says, uh, in the long run, we are all dead. Um, and if economists tell us that uh, in the future, after the storm passes, the ocean will be flat again, that doesn't do any good effectively because we'll all have died in the storm. So we need to focus on the short term. Yeah, so this is actually a great way to segue into uh, a more recent project uh, that you've been uh, that uh, you've been writing with Joel Wainwright, uh, Climate Leviathan, that uh, came out uh, a little while ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, February. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about where uh, some of the conversations with you and Joel uh, started out. At the, I, I read uh, early, earlier version of an uh, an article and eventually turned into a book project. But maybe if you could talk a little bit about sort of where the conversation started before even getting to the article stage, let alone the book. Yeah, for sure. And, it, it, and, and, and in a way, what ties these books together in some way is is a kind of um, thinking through of the state, mm -hmm. right? The role of the state, how does it function, uh, be it around um, economic crises, but in, in, in this case, one of, of climate change and the challenges to sovereignty that emerge. Absolutely. And in fact, I think I, I would say that everything I've done over the last 10 years, um, which isn't a ton, but what I have done has been... Uh, unintentionally or unwit unwittingly focused on uh, the anxiety of our current moment, which is, of course, from my perspective as a privileged white male academic in the global north, you know, uh, sometimes I say we when I really probably should be much more wary of who we is includes. But nonetheless, I do think it's not unreasonable to describe the world as, as uh, feeling quite constantly at a precipice and many people feel this way that, that there seems to be something substantial at risk uh, all the time and we're sort of in a permanent state of emergency so that it's so permanent the word crisis doesn't seem to have much grip anymore because if everything's a crisis then the word itself doesn't describe something in specific um at any rate so uh just around the same time that i was starting the project on Keynes, 2008 2009 uh, I was at a meeting, a, cl a climate justice meeting um, here, and there was a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, about how we might organize politically around climate change in a way that pointed not just toward 
avoiding or stopping climate change or, you know, adapting all the things that we normally talk about. But of course, as many people have pointed out over the years, but how we might use that as an opportunity to sort of increase the justice of the world to, 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 to confront climate change in a way that improved the lives of many and definitely avoided making them the, the, the poor have to deal with the implications of climate change. And there was a lot of talk in the room that I was in that day um, about uh, the need to, to get local communities involved, to have a kind of democratic, popular discussion at the local level to make that happen. And at that point, and I disagree with my, I would disagree with my position then, today, I would I see things differently. But at that point, I was panicked enough about climate change to feel like I was unsure of the role democracy could play in any attempt to confront it, if that makes any sense. I was, I was convinced, I'm now convinced that climate change is just as big a deal or bigger than I ever thought it was, but I am now convinced that, that dem democracy is essential to this to, to our attempts to address it. But at the time, I had a much more like, holy shit, the world is falling apart. If we all get together and chat, it's going to burn around us while we're chatting. And so I started to think about democracy on those grounds because I had always understood myself to be very pro-democracy. Um, and all of a sudden, here I am feeling like I maybe was less uh, it, uh, sure of its purpose at, the, at that moment. And at some point during the conversation, uh, I, I said to somebody you know, I think the way this is headed, we're, we're going to get either a climate Leviathan, referring to the Hobbesian work from the 17th century, or we're going to get a climate Lenin, one of the two. And climate Lenin is infinitely preferable, so we should organize for that. It was kind of an off-the-cuff thing. I thought it sounded sort of cool, but that's about it. At any rate, I was talking to Joel later that day, or that week, and I mentioned our, this conversation, and he was like, that's a great idea. We got to write about that. And he, he's a, you don't know him probably very well if you know him at all, but he's a very energetic and extremely intelligent guy. And he whipped down a few notes, like a paragraph, and sent them to me the next day. And then it just went from there. We wrote a paper that took forever to get published. No one wanted to publish it. And uh, probably for good reason in some ways. And then uh, eventually uh, it got published and it got a fair bit of circulation. And then when we approached Verso to write the book, they they agreed very quickly. Yeah. In looking at um, a whole bunch of literature around climate change, these questions of um, sovereignty and the decision um, come forward in so many different ways. You see Carl Schmitt's name evoked in a, in a number of ways. And uh, I'm wondering if you can talk just a, a little bit about the, the different formations or the possibilities of sovereignty that you write about in the, in the, in the book in terms of laying out what these possible scenarios might be. We did it in the paper and then we followed it through in the book, um, which as I said, just came out this February. And there we, we, we look at what we think are two of the most important, say, variables, which is to make them sound much more uh, discreet than they actually are. But for the purposes of thinking, we, we identified what we saw as two of the most important variables in the kind of global political or geopolitical structure as it's emerging to confront climate change. And the first of those uh, was the question of national sovereignty or not. Do we see... Uh, forces pushing to reinforce sovereignty at the level of the nation state or the state itself? Or do we see that disintegrating and seeing a, a kind of push toward a more planetary sovereign sovereignty? 
And the second was the question of whether or not that formation, whatever it was, would, would take the, a capitalist form or not, or would embrace capitalist modes of organization. And as you can imagine, that sets out a two-by-two two table. Capitalist planetary sovereignty, anti-capitalist planetary sovereignty, national sovereignty uh, that's capitalist, and national sovereignty, and, and anti-national sovereignty that's also anti-capitalist. And that two-by-two two grid, as sort of clunky as it is, and certainly it's, it, Joel and I intend it solely as a heuristic. We, we don't actually think that there's like really strict lines there, but as a way of thinking. And we named them uh, Climate Leviathan for the planetary capitalist sovereign or form of sovereignty, which might not necessarily mean only one nation state that covers the whole planet, but rather a coordinated set of existing nations. We named the planetary sovereign form that would be anti-capitalist climate Mao. We named the uh, anti-planetary pro-capitalist form of sovereignty climate behemoth to oppose Leviathan as it sort of traditionally has. And the last one, the one we hope for, is Climate X, which would be anti-sovereignty, um, uh, but also anti-capitalist. And those are, as I said, heuristic tools. And then we think through them. We think that Climate Leviathan is the direction in which the planet is headed. Uh, and we think, in particular, that the collective desperation, every time there's a meeting in Copenhagen or Paris for some sort of rule to, to save us from ourselves is a sign that people are kind of desperate for a climate leviathan to make that decision for them. Or it's happening in Poland right now. Or in Poland now. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Um, though, the, though the level of desperation seems to be less because people have lost faith in these, in these uh, agreements, which I think is justifiable because so far they've been meaningless. And I don't think there's good reason to assume they will become meaningless. Um, if we were to jump into climate X then as, as a, a, a site of political possibility or a site of resistance to the direction and the flow of things as they are, mm. uh, what are the kind of features or things that are happening on the ground right now that you see kind of uh, showing a way to some different type of future than uh, the ones being evoked mm -hmm. uh, you know, by the state or these other forms mm -hmm. of, of sovereignty? Yeah, that's a really good question. In fact, as you can imagine, it's the question that we always get asked. Yeah. What's climate X? What's yeah. it look like? There's a part of me that I think justifiably wants to duck the question and because I obviously can't know. Neither can Joel. That's part of the reason that it's X because it's a variable and we don't know. But I do think that's a bit cheap. So I'll try to tell you a little bit of what, what, I, what I think. Basically, I'll say what gives me hope um, and what gives me hope would fall under that category to me. The first is uh, the increasing... Uh, overlap in the climate justice community with uh, a critique of capitalism that's explicit. There have long time been people, I think, very concerned about environmental issues, climate change in particular, we might say, where people have criticized the general way we organize our lives, the kind of production-oriented, consumer-oriented, materialist in that colloquial sense. You know, a lot of criticisms of that kind of thinking, um, or, or act, not just thinking, acting. Um, but increasingly, we see people questioning the order of capital as part of the problem. That gives me a great deal of hope. Even just the fact that that is something that people can say, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can say that and, and be heard, and not only be heard, but be affirmed by hundreds of thousands of people. 
That's not the whole world, but that's a lot more than would have called themselves anti-capitalist, I think, even a decade ago in the heart of the world of capital. So that, I think, is an extraordinary development, not necessarily her, but just that kind of movement. I would also say that there is increasingly uh, proof that people see the answer outside the state because the state has failed and continues to fail. Um, so Joel and I, I think, would both argue, and in fact, we've just written a, a, a piece for public books, a, a website in the States, that argues this, that, that's, that the state will not save us and that the efforts have to happen outside the state. Now, that might be occasionally at the level of, say, the local state. So cities are doing fantastic things, and cities can keep doing more and more things. Um, but at the level of the national state, I don't think there's any evidence that it's the way to go, certainly not in the timelines that we've been handed. And so, uh, you know, the, one can always point, and like a lot of lefty people in in Canada, I, I do point to them quite quite often, but... One can always point to the work of First Nations and their, in many ways, historic refusal, not just of the Canadian state, but of the state as a social formation, and be enormously encouraged by that and the achievements that, that you know, against all odds, the First Nations communities have been able to achieve here in BC and elsewhere. And we can look to that as a model of a refusal of the state, but nonetheless an achievement. Without, at the same time, I'm always wary of the fact that, you know, so much of least Western Canadian left politics rides on the backs of the work and activism and punishment of indigenous peoples um, to, take the sh to take the risks for us, to spend 20 years in court, to fight the fights for us, and then, you know, to walk around like we won, which is a really troubling dynamic. But nonetheless, the achievements of First Nations peoples uh, on the grounds of something like Climate X are to be... Uh, not only celebrated, of course, but to be admired, enormously admired. And that gives me extraordinary hope. And I think we see the same things happening around the world. People refusing to, to work within the institutions they've been handed because those institutional mechanisms have utterly failed to address the problem. So while a lot of the times I don't feel very hopeful, there's a lot that gives me hope, and most of it would fall in that final quadrant of Climate X. Now, you've uh, finished these two really important uh, books very recently. And so I feel a bit sheepish asking this question, which is, uh, what are you working on right now in terms of writing or what are the kind of questions that have come up that you feel like jumping into that uh, build on these two projects in some way? Or are you going in a completely different direction? You need a little time out and... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, actually, I, I, uh, I it, it has taken me a long time to kind of decide what I want to try and write about now partly I think because I wasn't so sure I had a whole lot more to say about these questions um, even though whether I talk about them or not in the future I, I still think that the stuff that I'm writing about is really important whether or not my writing is important is a different question but those questions are enormously important but I've actually uh, just begun the work on a book proposal to to look at the problem of uh, sovereignty uh, in a moment when uh, the emergency feels permanent. Um, and as so I said, I guess I said that earlier on in, in our discussion today, but I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly concerned with the, the kind of looming mechanisms of violence that enable a, the state to maintain power in what feels like 
permanent emergency. And so how do we organize to resist that? So I guess what I'm, now that I'm saying it out loud to you, I guess in some ways what I'm thinking about is, so if I have a knee-jerk anxiety-induced Keynesianism inside me, how do I fight that? What, what, what kind of political mechanisms, what kind of political economic arrangements can, can face that? In the Keynes book, I, I think I conclude by basically saying this is a really big deal, but I don't know what to do. And so now I want to think about what, not just me, of course, but what, what might be the possibilities in this moment, which means, which means actually asking what's really going on. Jeff, I know you've been involved with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives in BC for a number of years on their board and uh, involved in research projects. But wondering if you can talk a little bit about that work that you're doing a little bit closer to the ground here. Sure. Um, I, I, I should preface anything I say with the fact that uh, I can take no credit for this. This is the fantastic folks at, at CCPA who, who do the work, who do the research, who talk to the people who get the word out. So, you know, I'm there on the board and occasionally involved in some research, but it's really, uh, I am a, in some ways parasitical on the work of, of the people <laughs> who are there. Um, and right now, uh, well, right now, the, the big thing at the CCPA is uh, this absolutely fantastic project being coordinated by uh, the director there, Shannon Dobb, and, uh, and Bill Carroll at the, at the University of Victoria called the Corporate Mapping Project again, which I am only very peripherally involved in, um, but which is trying to map out uh, the, the networks of capital that control the fossil fuel industry in Canada, largely in Western Canada. Um, and the conclusions are not only, of course, uh, ongoing because it's a five-year project and they're only halfway through, but the conclusions are, are not only that it's an extraordinarily profitable operation, even in the era of low prices and all the rest of it, especially for the big ma majors. You know, there are lots of small contractors who are barely getting by, but the big boys are reaping in profits hand over fist, even when things are bad. Um, so that's like the simple message. But the other message that is emerging is that the, the networks of corporate power are, of course, not just in the fossil fuel industry, but are deeply entangled with the entire, we might say, ruling regime of politi Canadian political economy, including especially the banks. So that work um, is mostly happening, not only, but mostly happening out of the BC office in UVic, uh, but it's obviously of national and international significance. Um, the, and the work that being as extremely rigorous, these people are professional researchers they know what they're doing it's amazing seeing the exposure of the chartered banks uh, along with sort of uh, the long-term uh, liabilities of cleanup that are oftentimes left uh, off of the books it's been really really important work to look at absolutely and the other thing that the CCPA has recently concluded uh, along with you know ongoing work on uh, Vancouver real estate on welfare rates on uh, child care, on poverty, education, seniors care. They're, they're really working on a whole variety of crucial issues. But Mark Lee there, the senior economist there, has recently concluded a, a project called the Climate Justice Project, which uh, probably all of you have heard of here in the room, but uh, again, just made essential contributions to the discussion of how to think about climate change, how to think about how we address it, especially the sort of mainstream mechanisms like uh, cap-and-trade, uh, carbon taxes, and to look at the, the, distributive, the distributive impacts of these kinds of shifts and, and whether or not they were not, not only not addressing the problem, but just entrenching inequalities, which 
I would argue that they absolutely are. So the, the office is a remarkable place filled with people who, who are so committed that you can do nothing but admire. It's a wonderful place. Uh, Jeff, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, joining us on uh, Below the Below the Radar. Thanks a lot for having me. It was really great. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Right on. Thank you, Jeff, for chatting with us. Thank you, Davis Steele, for the beautiful music you hear in all of our episodes. Thank you to our production team, including our colleagues Maria Cecilia Saba and Jamie Lee Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. <laughs>